Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Steve Thompson sitting in for Denny Long today. Mary Meyer joining us on our Smart Garden Show. And our phone number is always 651-989-9226. 9226. You can call or text. Mary, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Good morning, Steve. Good to be with you. Yes, and we always get a lot of calls and texts. And we should probably start with the cold temps. We have 20 degrees right now here in the Twin Cities area. And I'm sure people are seeing the daylilies and uh, even maybe the peony is popping out of the ground. Should people be concerned with this really cold morning? Well, it did feel like February again for a little while. Yes, it was. Uh, we had a, a drop in temperatures, but most of the plants that are out this early are still okay. I was hoping that we wouldn't see anything below 20 degrees. Once we get below 20 degrees, um, we can get some damage, but uh, I think we just maybe escaped a lot of that. Uh, our listeners that are further up in the north, of course, have still got some snow cover, so that helps them. Uh, I have crocus blooming in my lawn, and they are, they're dark purple now, dark color, but I think they will be okay. And the uh, weather forecast is looking good, so it's looking like uh, that hopefully this is one of our last cold days. Yeah, really, really chilly, and, and Friday didn't feel too great as well. And by the way, that number again, 651-989-9226. We already have a number of texts on the program today, and we'll get started there. Mary, I have an antique rose bush. It's about 80 years old. I want to transplant it from the north side of the house to the south side. Number one, how do I do that? And is it possible to share some of it with my daughter? Okay, uh, a rose bush, you can move this now in the spring, and you can do that as soon as the soil has thawed out enough uh, before the plant starts to grow. I would dig the hole where you're going to put it, the new location, get that all prepared and ready before you get the uh, rose, before you dig the rose out of the ground. Uh, use something to transport it, a wheelbarrow. If you can wrap up the roots so that minimal soil loss is there, that's a good idea. 
Um, sharing the rose bush is a little bit more difficult because you can't divide a rose like you do a peony or a hosta. The only way you're going to be able to propagate that rose is really a cutting. Now, that's really a challenge, but I know that some of our listeners out there have done grown roses from cuttings, but that's much more of a challenge. Um, but I assume because this is an heirloom and a particular rose, it isn't like you can go to the garden center and find that same rose again. So taking cuttings, the uh, softwood cuttings, as the plant starts to grow this spring, that's uh, information that you'll want to look up on our website at extension umn.edu and then click on yard and garden and look for propagation of plants so good good luck with that you can do it um, and there's some information online mary meyer joining us on our smart garden show each and every saturday morning between 8 and 9 a.m let's go to the phone lines jeff south st paul you're on the air my my question is, I'm noticing an abundance of moss growing. Uh, well, I've got one. It's underneath a oak tree and uh, a spruce tree. I'm wondering, does lime take care of that? Well, uh, moss, Jeff, is usually there because of fertility and low nutrient levels. Uh, it's unlikely if you're in the metro or southern Minnesota that you need to apply lime because we have alkaline soils generally. So moss is not so much a pH indicator as it is low fertility, low nutrients, and uh, conditions that don't favor other plants to grow. Now, there is a big movement for, uh, for planting moss in your lawn. Some people like the look of moss. But usually the first step is to take a soil test of that area and determine what the nutrient level is. Uh, you can Usually these are shadier conditions. Um, so if, if you can't improve the habitat for other plants to grow, maybe you can learn to like the moss or keep it there. But I'd recommend a soil test if you really want to change things. And then probably one of the fine fescue grasses that will tolerate lower nutrients and lower light conditions. And Mary, I have heard over the years that in lower light conditions when it comes to turf grass that you, you probably need to seed that area just about every year to kind of keep up with it that ultimately that you're going to be able to establish a lawn and not have to seed it every year is probably not going to happen. Exactly right, Steve. That's right. It's kind of an annual thing to put that uh, seed, grass seed down. And, of course, there are other alternatives. You can go to a ground cover. You know, some of our aggressive ground covers like lamium, um, more of the evergreen ones like um, pachysandra and periwinkle, those are are alternative plants that you can put in that area rather than uh, turf grass. Uh, speaking of turf grass, I uh, from our text line, I have an area that I'm planning to seed. I've already prepared it with soil. Is it too soon to put down the grass seed? When is a good time to do that? Um, it is too soon now to put down grass seed. Um, I follow the soil temperature maps that are online. You can find the climate. Uh, if you just Google soil temperature maps Minnesota, 
the Department of Natural Resources and the Department of Ag have a great soil temperature map. Uh, you can see that the soil temperature was in the 40s, up into the high 40s, took a big dip down uh, when we had this uh, last few days that were quite uh, cold. But you will not see grass seed germinating until we get up into the 60 and 70 degree soil temperatures. And those soil temperatures, incidentally, are also the same for our weed seeds to germinate, uh, such as crabgrass. Uh, there's some, again, some maps that show actually the emergence of crabgrass seed throughout the United States. And right now it's happening in Missouri. So we have a, a few uh, more weeks to go before our soils are warm enough for grass seed to germinate. So I would wait to put it down. Uh, probably it's going to be closer to the middle of May, um, early May, uh, mid-May. But again, tracking the soil temperature, um, that's pretty easy to do. To the phone lines again, let's bring in Barbara Newhall. Barbara, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Say, is it too soon to get Lyme disease? I haven't been feeling good, and now I've got a target um, rash on my leg, so I'm on an antibiotic. But I was wondering, is it too soon? Um, that's a good question, Barbara. The uh, ticks and their activity, I'm not exactly sure temperatures are necessary for ticks to actually uh, become activated. Um, so you might find that information uh, on our website under um, insects and all about insects that's there. But um, I... You know, when it gets to human and uh, medical conditions, I you, your best bet is to refer to your doctor. Right. Uh, the activity of insects, though, I, I see uh, a chance of thunderstorms Tuesday and highs in the 70s. I, I bet we'll start to see some insects out and about on, on Tuesday. It doesn't take much. Yes. It doesn't take much, and, and uh, the bumblebees, uh, other bees will start coming out, and that's why our early flowering, the first flowering plants, uh, the crocus and so on, are very helpful uh, for those pollinators. Um, before we take a break, Mary, uh, circling back around to the peonies, the daylilies, uh, tulips are starting to pop up out of the ground for some folks, especially in those uh, warmer areas, et cetera. Um, is it something you should fertilize early in the season, or is that something you should wait? Um, for fertilizing the spring flowering bulbs, a good time to do that is um, just as they're flowering and as their foliage is growing. We need to keep the green foliage on daffodils and tulips for several weeks after they flower. So that's right. Um, just as they're flowering and, and finished flowering, that is a good time to fertilize. Uh, some of the bulb growers like to use compost. They like to put compost around those bulbs uh, to increase the organic matter of your soil. Um, I wouldn't worry too much about fertilizer being the limiting factor. The main thing is to leave the foliage on those bulbs. Uh, one of the bulb growers likes to say eight weeks. You need to have eight weeks of green foliage growing on daffodils to have them flower uh, well every year. So be patient and keep the foliage. All right, very good. Any need to fertilize, say, the peonies or daylilies? Usually not. You know, peonies are an amazing plant that has a tremendous big root system. 
And usually uh, fertilizer isn't the limiting factor. Usually that's sunlight with that case. And then daylilies, actually daylilies are a wonderful plant to grow interspersed with our spring flowering bulbs like daffodils and tulips. Those spring flowering bulbs will flower first, then the daylilies will come on and grow and they will flower later. And you won't notice so much the daffodil or tulip foliage there that doesn't have the flowers on. You'll be focused more on the daylily and their growth. All right, quick break. We have more with Mary Meyer on our Smart Garden Show each and every Saturday morning between 8 and 9 a.m. The number again, call or text 651-989-9226. Here on News Talk, 830-WCCO. It is our Smart Garden Show. Mary Meyer in today. Our number is 651 Nine two two six. You can call or text the program. Keep that number handy. It's good for all our shows seven days a week here on News Talk A three O W C C O. Let's go to the phones. Donna, you're on the air with Mary Meyer. Good morning. Good morning. My question is: I have about fifteen amaryllis bulbs that have bloomed during this dreary time. Uh, my question is: When do I take off the the uh, flowers and the stem? Wow, Donna, good for you. 15 amaryllis. I'm uh, sure that was a beautiful sight. Uh, the flower, as soon as the flower has faded, the petals have faded, you can cut off the very top of that where the um, flower is. The actual green stalk, you can leave. That green stalk, it might not look so good, but that is still photosynthesizing and making sugar for the bulb. So you can leave that on. Uh, it will start to turn yellow and brown. And then when it's yellow and brown, you can cut the stalk off. But, wow, if you've got 15 blooming, I, I don't need to tell you how to keep these. You're doing a great job. Good for you. All right. Great call, Donna. Thanks. Uh, by the way, we have a number of texts uh, this morning, Mary, that the ticks are out. People have seen ticks. So, uh, beware of that. Let's go to the phones again. Frank in Bloomington. Frank, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Good morning, Mary. I have a question. I, I like to garden, and in the spring of the year, I have my garden tilled. And then uh, be- just before planting, when I go up there with all my equipment, etc., I throw some 10-10-10 fertilizer on top of the dirt, and then I mix it in good with the rake. Is that a good idea? I heard it's not... <laughs> good for the vegetables aren't as healthy doing that well most vegetables have a high uh, fertility requirement so um, that what you're doing is the standard recommendation we have had uh, for vegetables and growing vegetables for many many years we do have high fertility soils in minnesota but vegetables especially ones where you want a lot of fruits and so on usually need that uh, higher fertilizer. It's always a good idea to have a soil test done. If you hadn't done that for a while, that's a good idea. We have the information on how to take a soil test um, at the extension.umn.edu website. 
Um, but uh, for years, people have done it. The other thing you might do is uh, rather than scatter it widely all over it, you might put it in the individual holes where you're planting tomato plants or pepper plants or put it in a row until it underneath the row before you put your seed down. So local application uh, might be more beneficial than broadcasting it. But if you do a soil test, you'll really know uh, what your nutrient level is. Mary, is there any guidance on if if you have raised garden beds? I have a couple of raised gardens where I grow vegetables just because in my neighborhood the raised gardens tend to keep the critters out. Uh, it works pretty well. But uh, I, I, I generally every year are putting uh, some new soil in, trying to I, – I don't change out the soil completely, but every year – I, I'm amending the soil, if you will, with, with new, fresh soil and kind of changing it out every so often. But, but are there any specific recommendations on those raised beds? Uh, what you're doing is great, Steve. Uh, the raised beds, um, reapplication of soil, that, that really is a good idea. Raised beds are much uh, better drained. The drainage is superior, so the plant roots get a lot of oxygen as well as water. They usually require more water in a raised bed because of the drainage. But what what you're doing, reapplying soil, adding soil, um, is a good idea. All right. uh, Quick text line. Uh, call. Uh, we ask Larry. Uh, well, no. Let's go to Larry in Janesville first. Let's get Larry in before the weather break. Larry, you're on the Smart Garden Show. Yes. A very good morning to you. Uh, I have a question. Uh, I have a number of uh, maple trees in the yard, and last fall uh, they didn't shed their leaves until well, basically December. So I didn't get a chance to rake and, and clean up the yard. Having said that, uh, I'm just curious. I plan right now, as soon as it dries out or warms up, you know, I plan on uh, mulching these leaves, you know, a number of times to try to grind them up where they go into the soil. Curious, what is the nutritional value of these leaves? Is it, what is the pros and cons of uh, mulching and, and incorporating them into the lawn versus raking them and taking them off? So that's a great question, Larry. Uh, yes, maple leaves, especially last year, were really late to fall. So chopping them up with your mower is a good idea. You will need to mulch them several times in order to be able to see the grass. So after you do the, the uh, mowing and so on, if you can't still see the grass easily, then you need to rake those leaves and remove them because they will suffocate the grass. Um, if you can't see the grass, it's not going to grow. So you've got to move them off there. So your other question about the nutritional value of maple leaves, uh, not much. There, there's a little bit of nutrition in there, but not much. There's more nutrition when they're totally decomposed and decayed as organic matter, uh, adding that carbon back into the soil. So the nutritional value is pretty much when they're decayed. But interestingly enough, there are some kinds of maples that when chopped up on lawns have actually reduced the, um, the population of dandelions. So they act kind of as a, a weed control and certain, there is some, some research that has shown certain maples will do that with the mulching. So, um, but rake off the excess and, um, 
And, yeah, clean it up so your lawn can begin to grow. A quick break. We have more with Mary Meyer. It is our Smart Garden Show each and every Saturday morning between 8 and 9 a.m. The phone number again, 651-989-9226, 651-989-9226. And you can call or text the program here on News Talk, E3OWCCO. Our Smart Garden Show continues with Mary Meyer. A lot of calls and a lot of texts. We have Barb, Jack, and Gary waiting on the phone lines. Uh, We'll go to Barbara in a moment, but first from our text line, I have a bird feeder hanging over my house to garden. Can I use preen so fallen seed doesn't sprout, or will preen hurt the hostas? Uh, great question. Uh, preen is a pre-emergence herbicide, so it kills seeds as they're germinating. It kind of makes a film across the soil. Um, in theory, no, that should not hurt your hosta, but uh, preen has a long soil residual. It can have a residual for a year in the soil, and um I'd be careful in using it around any any plants that you want to grow. In theory, it should not hurt your hosta. Hostas are a big plant. They're not a seed germinating, but they will make a film across the soil. So you might see some tip burn or some browning on the hosta um, because I think what this uh, listener is trying to do is to prevent all the bird seed from germinating. And um, hopefully the birds have eaten most of the seed, and you just have the shells there. All right. Um, One other from the text line. Is there an advantage to using pelleted garden seed like carrots or beets versus regular seed? So pelleted seed is uh, great. It's usually much more expensive because there's been uh, quite a bit of time taken to encapsulate that seed so that it's a bigger, um, a bigger seed, and then it's easier to plant. So yes, you often um, can uh, space it properly when you're planting it. You don't have to thin as much, and usually the seeds will grow uh, individually stronger and quicker. So not all seeds available pelleted, but yes, if you find it, it's usually quite a good deal, especially for small seed. And that's been a trend with grass seed, I've noticed, that you can buy it in a pelleted form with with some of the fertilizer and coating on it that'll help uh, absorb and hold water around the seed. Yes, that's right, Steve. Yeah, and I, I've had pretty good luck with it. If you forget to water, for instance, uh, one day, it, it'll typically survive, which is is a good thing if you're forgetful. Out of the phone lines we go, Barbara in Minneapolis. Barbara, you're on the air with Mary Meyer. Hi, thank you much. Uh, my neighbor has a yard that let whatever blows in there, they let it grow. Uh, they now have a pine tree that was about six feet tall for a while. It's now over their garage and the wires. And last year it started dropping lots of, of brown needles. It looks real healthy, though, and it's in my garden. And I have daylilies and hydrangeas. Is it going to hurt those? And one other thing about the preen, can I plant a tomato plant where that was last year? 
Um, yes, you can plant a tomato plant where you had cream last year, but don't put in beet seeds or carrot seeds or anything like that because they won't come up. But uh, the tomato plant, yes, the plant, uh, you know, a, bi- a bigger plant will be fine. Uh, and the other thing, oh, the, the needles. Uh, actually, the pine needles should not be a problem at all. Um, if I were you, I would rake up those needles and use them as mulch where you want to prevent weed growth or weeds uh, growing. Uh, you know, in the south where they have the long needle pines, they actually bale and sell that mulch. And um, we don't see that up here in the north, but pine needles are a great source of organic matter. That's another type of living mulch that you can use to um, to prevent weed growth on the top of um, any of your beds. And although they are acidic in nature, they are like a drop in the ocean for changing the soil pH. So I would not worry about the soil pH um, at all. Um, one other follow-up on tomatoes. It's way too early to think about planting tomatoes. I always wait till Memorial Day weekend uh, before putting tomatoes in the ground. But th- that is a crop that you want to rotate. You, you don't want to put tomatoes in the same spot year in and year out. True or false? That is true, Steve. The rotation of plant families, the vegetables, especially the Solanaceae family, tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, eggplants, they, there are a lot of fungal diseases uh, and blights that are perpetuated year after year. So ideally, you should move those far away from where you had them before. Uh, I know that's a challenge for those of us with community gardens and small garden plots, but still moving them to the other side of your garden, the other as far away as you can get in a rotation, that's a great idea. We do have, as far as timing, we do have a lot of information on our Yard and Garden blog, uh, videos on starting seed and uh, timetables on when to start seed. So we're getting close to the time for starting uh, tomatoes, um, peppers, and so on, those seeds, because hopefully in another uh, six weeks or so, we'll be able to think about planting those outdoors. Very good. Mary Meyer joining us here on our Smart Garden Show, and it's on the air each and every Saturday. Let's go to the phones again. We go to Andover and Jack. You're on the air. Hello. Good morning, guys. Uh, Just a question about moving forward at nurseries. Do you see any issues with not having availability of tomato plants? And I like putting cuke plants in, that type of thing. Have you heard anything about that? Well, uh, you you can find this information on uh, the website. So growers, greenhouse growers, plant growers are essential industries in Minnesota. Uh, believe me, these growers have their plants already in the ground and growing, and they will have plenty of plants for you. We are Wonderful. We're hopeful in the industry that the garden centers will be able to be open as essential industries uh, also. But our industry is very creative and will figure out ways to get the plants to you, whether it's curbside pickups or uh, other online orders. Uh, but the, the plants will be there. And okay, thank Mary, you. 
Yeah, very, very good, Jack. That's a great call because so many people enjoy spending time in their yards and gardens. And I, I know once upon a time when, when my daughter played hockey, they had a fundraiser and the kids would, we, you'd order the plants and then they would drop those off. So so maybe we'll have some sort of delivery option, if you will, or you can pull up to the garden center and they'll they'll put the plants in your car just kind of like uh, you do at the grocery store right now. I, I'm sure, like you said, we'll get very creative when that time comes. That's right, Steve. So there are plenty of plants. And as you say, there is a great, uh, great, respite restore restoration with healing so our gardens are a great thing to be thinking about now looking around your landscape and thinking about what trees you could plant as well as thinking about growing some vegetables even if it's just a couple of tomatoes in a container or some herbs that your family likes we have lots of information about that small space gardening uh, that's another new article that came up on the Yard and Garden blog that uh, people can find at extension.unn.edu and then click on Yard and Garden. Mary Meyer joining us here on our Smart Garden Show. Always a pleasure to visit with Mary. And by the way, we want to go to the phone lines again. Gary in St. Louis Park. Gary, you're on the air. Hello. Hi, good morning, Mary and Steve. Uh, you guys have already answered my question about when to plant tomatoes, but my question is I've got a couple of pots. They're about two feet in diameter, and I want to know what the best soil is. Should I use topsoil, topsoil with peat, or um, potting soil for that? Well, uh, there, you, it's your choice. Uh, most people will use potting soil. So commercial potting soil in the lightweight bags, these bags that are easy to pick up and lift, those lightweight bags do have quite a bit of peat in them. They have a lot of uh, air space, and they have great water holding capacity. So the commercial growers, that is what they use. They do not use our native soil from the ground. Now, you can make your own soil mix uh, from the ground. You can take our wonderful Minnesota topsoil that's dark in color, even if it's heavy clay soil. You take the regular topsoil, one part topsoil, one part peat, and one part sand, perlite, or vermiculite. And those three components can make a nice soil mix. Um, that's quite laborious. You need a big wheelbarrow or something to mix that uh, up in. But that's the, the old standard of making your own uh, soil mix. So either of, either of those will work. Um, it's less expensive if you make your own. But the commercial mixes, uh, lightweight bags, are really great. And one of the, the things you brought up, gardening in small spaces, um, also a Container gardening, if people live in an apartment and have a balcony and other areas, uh, it's still possible to get uh, those garden-fresh tomatoes uh, from a pot on, on a deck or a porch. Yes, that's exactly right, Steve. And the, the kinds that I grow, the tomatoes I grow in containers, are the small cherry tomatoes or the pear ones because those are really productive. Um, you know, you can't, you can't make your own sauce from those. I guess you could if you got enough of them. But they are so productive. Uh, the Sweet 100 or Sweet 1000, uh, 
There's sun gold, there's sun sugar. Those are some of the yellow ones. We have those recommendations of when master gardeners throughout the state have grown uh, tomatoes. Those recommendations are, again, at our extension uh, website. Cornell University has a wonderful, the most expansive variety trials I've ever seen are up at Cornell's website, and they have every tomato known to man and the ratings on that and recommendations, just a a huge wealth of information um, at Cornell. But for Minnesota, uh, if you want to see what master gardeners have liked, uh, you can see that at extension.umn.edu. Click on Yard and Garden. One of my favorite treats in the summer are those fresh cherry tomatoes that I pick out of my own garden. I don't think there's anything better. A quick break with Mary Meyer. It is our Smart Garden Show. We have much more coming up. By the way, our phone number is 651-989-9226. You can use that to call or text the program. And if you want to visit with Mary Meyer, by all means, get in those phone lines right now. Here on News Talk, E3OWCCO. It is our Smart Garden Show Saturday mornings between 8 and 9 a.m. Mary Meyer joins us today. The phone number is 651-989-9226. 651-989-9226. Feel free to call or text. We'll be going to the text line in a moment. But first, Leroy and Eden Prairie are on the air with Mary. Yes, my yard has been taken over by a green fungus. There's no roots. I can pick it off, and it's really bad. Um, okay, Leroy, I, I think what you're seeing are the uh, remains of a fungal disease such as snow mold that might be on, when you say your yard, I assume it's on your lawn. Yeah. We often, yeah, we often see this after the snow leaves. Uh, many of these, these snow mold or snow blights are actually fungal diseases that like cold temperatures and the moisture that's there. So most times for a homeowner, these are not fatal. As they dry out and as your lawn dries out, if you can rake that area, that will help to aerate it and disperse that fungal uh, disease. And I think that uh, that will take care of it. So just with time and the warming up, it should be fine. Raking will help as long as your um, as uh, things have dried out enough so you don't see your footprints walking along there. So wait till it's dry and then do some raking. All right, so it is okay generally to be out on your turf grass now if it is dry. You don't want to be in any of those low areas, et cetera, where it is still wet. Right. It's, you know, it's really hard to make a generalization because in my sure. – lawn my my backyard is a slope and the south and it dries out quickly it's been dry for quite a while the front where the north where the snow has just now finally left in the shadier areas that's much wetter and if you if in there if i remove or move the leaves and so on there's a lot of ice that's still in that area so uh if you still see ice and can see the moisture then uh just wait a little while so Work on the south side first. Um, from our text line, here's a quick one. When is the best time to plant arborvitae? Can I do it now? Um, and once again, can you recommend a fast-growing variety? I want to create a bit of a screen or a privacy uh, barrier, if you will. 
Yes. Yeah, so the arborvita, there there are several kinds that are available. You can plant that now as soon as you can. Uh, the as soon as the soil has uh, warmed up enough and the frost is out of that. So I would look online at your garden centers, and uh, the techie variety is often recommended, but there. Several different kinds, depending on what the ultimate height is that you want. You can check that out at extension.umn.edu yard and garden. We have a wonderful uh, plant selection tool, the plant elements of design. We'll show you the pictures there and the different heights of Arborvita. But great time to be doing it now um, in the next couple of months. Vern in Ridgefield, you're on the air with Mary Meyer. Good morning. Hi, Mary. Burned here, Ridgefield. I had a yellow crocus last Saturday. I had one bloom, and on Wednesday it was full bloom, beautiful. It had nine blooms. It was at least five by six. Good for you. That's great, Burn. Uh, wonderful to see those spring crocus coming. They are one of the first things to come out in the spring, and they're great for pollinators. Amazing how uh, the first year we often see the biggest uh, blooms on these spring bulbs, but crocus um, are something that actually can multiply as long as you leave that green foliage up and let the green foliage mature for several weeks. All right. Very good. Thanks, Vern. Let's go to Jean in Mendota Heights. Jean, you're on the air. Hi there. Can you suggest a tree? Uh, we lost one right in front of the house. I'd say it's about 25 feet out, and it got uh, girdling. It was a really pretty maple that would just turn gorgeous colors in the fall. Prior to that, there was a mountain ash in there for many years. That was kind of messy when it would drop little, little uh, orange, you know, seeds or berries. But, um, you know, I, I, it can't be something that's huge and covers up the house, but it, it's leaving quite a blank space there when we take that maple down. We haven't taken it down yet, but it's, it's dead. So there are lots of uh, great trees, Dave, that you could replace that with. If you want a smaller one, of course, you could go with a crab apple or uh, the tree lilac. Both of those are small but have uh, nice flowers on them. There are many new uh, maples. There are several maples that our cultivars recommended and introduced from the University of Minnesota. Um, the honey locust is a larger tree but has a fine foliage, not as much of an issue uh, with raking. Oaks are a tremendous tree. They're one of our uh, great trees that are native as well as support so many other uh, forms of wildlife. So oaks really are one of my favorites. They're also disease-resistant elms, the St. Croix American elm, wonderful tree. I planted that um, in my backyard. So if those aren't enough ideas, again, go to the Plant Elements of Design on the Extension uh, website. Yeah, and the elm is a great tree, the disease-resistant. They're extraordinary, and they really grow fast, Mary. They do. <laughs> yeah, they're very, very fast growers. Um Back to our text line here on our Smart Garden program. Uh, when should the springtime application of milky spore be put down? The Japanese battle, uh, beetles have been really bad in my yard. Can uh, the milky spore be broadcast? How do you apply? I would assume that's some sort of treatment for the beetles. 
Yeah, the milky spore is a bacterial uh, disease, a bacteria. It's a bacteria that actually feeds on the grubs. So that is a biological control for Japanese beetles. So that is something you have to make sure, number one, that the milky spore, that the bacteria is actually alive, that what you're putting down is a live product. And most bacteria need warmer temperatures to survive and to grow well and to populate. So it's really a summer application. I, you know, I would think maybe May, but probably better off in June. And having said all that, there's quite a bit of controversy about whether or not milky spore can actually control Japanese beetle grubs. You've got to have a lot of grubs and for that to actually work. So I would, I would consider getting that from a garden center that's keeping it maybe in a refrigerator where it's still alive or getting it mail order so that you make sure that the product that you have is, is truly alive and can work. From our text line, I have a yellow smoke bush, full grown, nice shape. Do I need to prune it? Also, I have a, a, a younger a red smoke bush with very few tall stems. Um, how do I prune that to make it thicker? Yeah, so here's our first question on pruning, and the show is almost over because I was going to talk a lot today about pruning, Steve. <laughs> so uh, the smoke bush is marginally hardy in our climate, although we do have some big plants uh, out at the arboretum. You can cut off one-third of the top of those tall stems, and that will help your uh, the side buds to break and to make that bushier. Um, otherwise, I would not worry too much about pruning your smoke bush. Um, a lot of it is keeping alive what you've actually got there in our climate. So you don't have to worry about pruning it other than taking off some of that tip growth to make it uh, the side branches come out. This time of year, it, it, we have reached April. Yay, we have reached April. So April is our month to do not prune oaks. So April, May, June, a big hazard for pruning oak trees because of oak wilt. No pruning now on the oak trees. Our spring flowering shrubs like uh, lilacs, um, spirea, and so on, do not prune these shrubs if you want to see the flowers. Okay. The pruning on the spring plants is just after they flower. So uh, the smoke bush is more really a midsummer blooming plant, a late spring, midsummer. So you can prune that, but uh, just the tips I would take off on that. All right, Mary, we've got to run. Time is tight. Once again, uh, the website. Extension. .umn.edu, then click on Yard and Garden. Uh, you can search that or go to the blog where we have lots of new articles about spring, making plans for your garden, small space gardening, starting seed, how to start a raspberry patch, lots of great reading and lots of videos also up there. All right, Mary, have a great day and thanks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. 
Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.